When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the donkey? They answered them, Just as Jesus had said, so that so they let them go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their robes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And, and his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And when evening, whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your wrongdoing. They came again to Jerusalem as he was walking in the temple complex. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was John's baptism for he from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid, the afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Well, good evening again. It's My name's JJ. If you missed it the first time, we're going to spend some time looking at God's Word. You've got an outline there in front of you uh, that will help you let you know where we're going. Keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 11. We will do a bit of Bible flicking as well. Uh, hopefully, you know your Old Testament. If you don't, help the person next to you so they can find their way around as we look a bit, about, a bit at the Old Testament as well. Uh, but when something momentous happens in your life, it really changes you forever. When you get married, for example, when that person who loves you agrees to be committed to you and makes promises to you for the rest of your life, that changes how you live. That changes your life. You don't live like a single person anymore. You share your money. You share a house together. You share a bed. I learned that when I got married uh, to Bernie, what is mine is hers and what is hers is hers. But that moment, that moment, that wedding day changed my life forever. When I became a parent for the first time, that amazing life-changing moment, I remember how proud I was of my wife, Bernie, for kind of delivering our child. Uh, It it was great. Uh, And I got to meet Nathan, my firstborn. He he was a really cute little kid. Uh, But that event, that moment, this knowledge that I was now a dad changed the way I lived my life from that moment on. It changed the way Bernie lived her life from that moment on. Things were never again going to be the same for us. We now had this little person who we had to care for. And then when we went home from the hospital, it was like, this is real because there was no one there to help us. But imagine if these massive moments had happened, but I kept on living as if nothing had changed. Imagine I married Bernie and the next day I tried to go and date another woman, probably very unsuccessfully if you heard my story from last week, but I just went and tried and do do that. Or I didn't acknowledge that Nate was my, my child at all. Imagine these, these, these events change nothing for me. How offensive would that be to Bernie and to my kids? How stupid would it be of me to continue to act like this? And really in the first 11 verses of today's passage, the crowds see this amazing experience. They have this life-changing experience. This moment where they praise Jesus as God's king. They worship him as God's Messiah. And you'd expect that that moment would change their lives forever. It would change their hearts forever. That moment of worshipping Jesus would shape who they are from that moment forward. But by the end of verse 11, the whole event seems to just be lost on them. And they continue to carry on in life as if the moment never happened. And so let us pray now that as we come to Mark chapter 11... This momentous occasion, what Jesus, what God is teaching us in his word, would not be lost on us or our hearts. So let's pray to God now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your powerful word. We pray that unlike the crowds in today's passage, we would hear your word, we would see the amazing things that you have done and be truly changed by them. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last few weeks, we've been in Mark's gospel, and Jesus has been on a bit of a road trip with his disciples. They're making their way to the city of Jerusalem. They're on the road to Jerusalem, and if you remember, his disciples are torn. They're torn because they're really excited, the fact that they've figured out that Jesus is the Messiah. And where are they headed? They're headed to the city of the king. But they're torn because we keep hearing they're confused and scared because Jesus keeps saying to them, when I get to Jerusalem... I'm going to be handed over to evil, wicked men. I will suffer. I will die. And it is only then that I'll rise from the dead. But at the start of chapter 11, it's no longer just Jesus and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem. 
It's not just him and his apostles following him. There are big crowds on the road with them. But see, these crowds are not necessarily following Jesus the same way the the apostles are. Yeah, there's these crowds, but these people are there for a different reason. You see, they're going to Jerusalem because they are pilgrims. They're heading to Jerusalem because of the Passover. Now, the Passover, if you're not sure, is this big event that took place in the Old Testament. In fact, it is the most important celebration for Jews even to this day. Because it is when they remember that God took them out of slavery in Egypt. What they would do, they killed a lamb, they took the blood off that lamb, they painted the doorpost, they painted the window frames to make sure that God would pass over their house. God's judgment would pass over them. And they had a celebration every year in Jerusalem to remember this moment. They would give sacrifices at the temple and they would share in the lamb like at Passover. And during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell. A city would just be crammed full of people for this special moment. And so these people, they're coming from all over Israel, probably mainly from Galilee where Jesus is from the north, making their way down south to Jerusalem. And so here's Jesus. He's got all these crowds around him. They're about 50 kilometers out from the city. And as they leave Jericho, if you remember last week, a blind man calls out to Christ. He calls out to Jesus. Here's Jesus coming. He says, Jesus, heal me. And Jesus, without doing anything, without really even saying anything, the man is instantly healed. And this man then decides to continue to follow Jesus on the road. And so here is Jesus with his apostles, with the crowds, and now with a blind man. A blind man who can now see the evidence is there for the people. They're walking with Jesus, living, breathing power right next to them. It's not just a story they've heard anymore. The evidence is walking right next to them. The once blind man is there. And it's got to be exciting for them. The crowd must be ecstatic at what this guy can do. And so they're asking, is this man... Is this Jesus, God's saviour king? Is he the Christ that God has promised? Is he the Messiah who is going to save God's people? And so if Jesus was hoping for a quiet entry into Jerusalem, if he was just kind of wanting to slip in, it's no longer going to happen. And so they walk up the hill to Jerusalem. They're part of this massive crowd. And Jesus quietly pulls aside two of his disciples and gives them really what seemed to be Weird instructions. Have a look with me at verse 2. He says to these disciples, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter in it, enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, What are you do why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the donkey. They answered him, they answered them just as Jesus said. So they let them go. Now that's a strange little moment for Mark to record for us in his gospel. Out of all the things he could tell us about, he tells us this why make such a big deal about a donkey being tied up, then untied, and then going for a bit of a ride? What's what's his purpose? And people often want to know. How did Jesus know that donkey would be outside that house tied to that? How did he know that? Why, how, how could he possibly have told his disciples that he was going to be there? 
I mean, it could have been that he prepared it in advance. He could have paid for the donkey. And that was simply the code phrase he needed to give to the guys. And he just wanted to express to his disciples that he has the gift of, of administration, that spiritual gift that we all desire. Did you guys know that? That in that list of spiritual gifts that Paul talks about, there's, there's healing and prophecy and speaking in tongues and there's administration. How many of you are praying for that gift, I wonder? Or more likely, it's that he's been prophetic. He knew and he engineered these things as God's son. He made this happen. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because people can often get up get caught up on the how, but it's really the why of this event. Why did Jesus want that donkey? Why did he want to ride into Jerusalem on it? And the reason is Jesus understood everything about himself in light of the Old Testament. And this was all about Jesus being careful and specific to fulfill prophecies from the Old Testament. You see, the prophet Zechariah makes all sorts of prophecies about God's saving king. And so let's look at this one together. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. If you've got your Bibles there, flick over back to Zechariah. It's a small book. It's not big. Uh, see if you can find it. I'll give you a couple of seconds, and then I'll just start reading. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is what he writes. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Because you see, up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus had not wanted the crowds to really know who he is. Up until this point, he has not declared the fact that he is the Messiah to the world. But as he comes into Jerusalem, it is like he is lifting the veils for the world to see and make it clear for everyone to know he is the Christ. See, by riding into Jerusalem on the colt, he is saying, I am the one Zechariah was talking about. Look, your king is here and I am righteous and I am holy and I am humble and I have come to my city. And so the disciples, they get the donkey. And Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on this donkey as the king. And it's like he's saying, I am your king. Here is your life-changing moment, people. From this moment on, everything should change. It's never going to be the same again. So what are you going to do about it? And what comes next? What comes next is one of those great moments that we know as Christians when the people who, are been, who have been traveling with Jesus, they declare him to be the king. They line the roads. They put down their robes on the road. They cut down palm branches and lay them in front of Jesus. And that's why it's called Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday that we remember before Easter. And so then they shout out Psalm 118 together. You don't need to flick to, flick to it for us because there it is in verse 9. They say, Hosanna. And that means save us. They yell out, save us. Save us. Hosanna. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And so it really sounds like the crowd is declaring that Jesus is the king. You see, I think a lot of the time we actually misunderstand what's going on here. 
Because if this crowd had been all of Israel, if this crowd had been all of Jerusalem, why is it then that three days later they are chanting for his blood? But see, we need to understand this isn't all the people of Jerusalem. Now, this is the crowd that has come with him. These are the pilgrims. These are the people who have seen Jesus do amazing things. You see, by the end of verse 11, if the crowd really was convinced that Jesus was the king, I think things would have turned out very differently straight after this. See, many were certain, but not all had eyes to see. And so by verse 11, the crowds had disappeared. And Jesus is just there in the temple with his disciples and the crowds have completely faded away. If they had really been convicted that Jesus was the Christ, they would have tried to make him king. But they just disappear like a vapor. And Jesus is left alone with his disciples. But whether they knew it or not, Jesus is making his point. He's saying, I am the promised king. I am the promised Messiah. But the moment that happens next is kind of an anticlimax. Having made this amazing entry into Jerusalem, he then doesn't head up to the palace. He instead turns around, goes back out the city a few kilometers, finds a room in a town called Bethany and just stays there for the night. And that really brings us to the second event. It's there in verse 12. Because the next day, Jesus is walking back to Jerusalem from Bethany and he's hungry. He's hungry and he sees this fig tree. And he sees the fig tree has leaves growing on it. It's a healthy looking tree. And so he goes to see if the fig tree has any fruit growing on it. Because he's hungry and he wants some food. But when he doesn't find that it has something, he does some, any fruit, he does something a little odd. He curses the tree. Verse 14. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. I'm going to tell you, this is Jesus' only destructive miracle in all four Gospels. It's the only time he uses his mighty power to kind of bring about destruction during his time on earth. And it kind of seems like it's a little cruel. That poor, that poor tree didn't have any, any uh, figs growing on it, so Jesus says, you'd be cursed. I read one person who says, sorry about the t- this to the teenagers, uh, but it says that he's acting like a spoiled teenager. You haven't given me any fruits, so and I'm going to curse you, stupid tree. And I'm like, like that kind of, what's he doing here? But to think like that is to miss the point. And the clue there is in verse 13, where Mark tells us that, of course, he wasn't going to find fruit on the fig tree because it wasn't in season. It wasn't the time for the figs to be growing. Jesus knew you couldn't get fig tree, uh, figs at that time, but Jesus was leading his disciples to that tree to make a point for them. He's using the fig tree to, as like kind of the, the ultimate sermon illustration, if you'd like, to help them understand what is about to happen, what he's about to do. But the disciples, they are just confused. They don't know what is going on. But Jesus is saying, let's go to the temple and all will be revealed. So verse 15. Jesus and his passion for his God. They come to Jerusalem and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling the temple. He overturned the money change tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. 
See, this is one of the moments where Jesus breaks the mold of him being meek and mild that the world holds him in view. Because he gets angry. He is furious. He is deeply ticked off at what he sees taking place in the temple. Jesus rarely gets angry. But he is in a rage. He is so angry at what he is seeing the Jew- Jewish leaders do to his father's house. Now, we can overemphasize this. We want to make sure that we don't think that the Jewish leaders have somehow turned the temple into Paddy's Market. It's not like they're selling pirated DVDs they can buy for 10 bucks and some knockoff Nikes and just kind of get whatever you want. That's not what they're doing. They are selling religious things. They were selling animals for people to sacrifice. So that if someone had kind of come out of town like these pilgrims, they've come for the Passover, they didn't have to bring the lamb all the way with them. They could just buy the lamb there for their convenience. And the money changes. What they're doing is they're taking the Roman money, the Roman cash, which you couldn't give to God in the temple, and they're swapping it for the appropriate temple money that you're allowed to donate. But you see, up until this point, This had always been done outside the temple. For hundreds of years, this is happening outside the temple. And that really was good enough for God's people. You get your sacrifice, you get your money changed outside the place where you meet God. But the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time, they are deeply corrupt. And they brought what was inappropriate for the temple of God into God's house. And so what they're doing ticks Jesus off. And why are they doing it? Well, probably to make some hard, hard, I can't speak, cold, hard cash. See, the temple was where Jews and Gentiles could go to meet God. And so when Jesus saw this, he just blows up. He's turning over the tables. He's driving out the animals. He's yelling at people. I actually think it's kind of miraculous that he can completely overturn this evil and corrupt one man doing this, going off. And I reckon he yells, verse 17, I won't do it tonight, uh, but I reckon he yells it. Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. And right there, he's quoting two Old Testament passages. He's quoting Isaiah 56, which told the people, the temple, what, and what the temple was and what it was for. The temple was for a house of prayer. It's not meant to be a marketplace. But here you are, he says to the Jewish leaders, and you've turned my father's house, a place of prayer and worship, into a den of thieves. And when he says that line, he's quoting Jeremiah 7. Because in Jeremiah 7, God warned Israel. He says to Israel, don't think just because you've got the temple. Don't think that just because you're Abraham's descendants that you can somehow presume upon me. I will judge you, he says. I will judge you for your sin. Don't pretend that just because you are religious, that somehow that means you love me. Don't put on a show and think that means somehow I will save you. And Jesus is saying here at this point that all those prophecies of the Old Testament, they are all coming true. God will judge you, he says, for your hypocritical religion and for your corruption. He is saying to the priests and the Jewish leaders, you are gone. 
And that's exactly what the Old Testament said the Christ would do when he comes. So Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. This is the last book of the Old Testament. It should be really easy to find. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 says this. From verse 1. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire, see, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a cleansing lie. You see, Jesus is saying, I've come to refine things. I've come in judgment. He did not come as the Savior, but he came as, he sorry, he did come as the Savior, but he also came to judge. And he's saying, I will judge your corrupt religion. I will judge you for what you've been doing in the temple. And I'm bringing something new. See, Jesus is saying, I'm no ordinary human being. Because no normal person would have the guts to walk into the Jewish temple and just do this. He's saying God's king is here. God's Messiah. God is here. The Lord is here. He's arrived and he will wipe out the corrupt and fruitless religion of the Jews. And he will open up a way for the world to come to God. Jesus is finally making it very clear for whoever wants to know, I am the Christ. And this is what I'm on about. I am both the judge and the savior of this world. And so is it any wonder that the Jewish leaders heard this and immediately they try to find a way to kill him? See, these corrupt Jewish leaders, they've always hated Jesus. They want to get rid of him, but so they finally they've had enough. It's time for him to go. And so they're ready to make their move, but they're going to have to wait because the crowds love him and that ticks them off all the more. But during the day, he would go to the temple and the crowds, they would just surround him so he's protected. And at night, he kind of snuck out and went back to Bethany. And that really leads us to the next point, which is we're back to the fig tree again, where it's all about the leaves, but no fruit. Because the next morning, Jesus again walking along with his disciples back into Jerusalem from Bethany, and they pass, pass, go back past that fig tree, the fig tree that Jesus cursed. In verse 20, they saw the fig tree was withered from the roots up. And Peter, he immediately remembers. He's like, that's the fig tree. That's the fig tree Jesus cursed. And you notice how Jesus doesn't have to explain to them. He doesn't have to explain to them a good story. Because you see, the fig tree, that is Israel. The fig tree is the temple. The temple that they were in yesterday. The fig tree is this corrupt Jewish leaders and their fruitless religion. Because they looked wonderful and green and full of life. They looked healthy they looked beautiful. But they didn't know God. They looked like they had everything from God. They had his word. They had his temple. They made sacrifices. But Jesus is saying they are fruitless. They've turned this place where the world should be able to come to meet God. And they've turned it into a den of robbers. They were more interested in making money than seeing God's name glorified among the nations. And when God's chosen king finally came, they plotted to kill him. They were like this fig tree. They looked impressive, 
but they were all leaves and no fruit. And Jesus is saying, this is what will happen to them. From the roots up, they will wither and they will die and they'll be judged by God. And as the disciples look at that withered fig tree, they knew God's judgment was coming. God's people will be judged for their fruitlessness. The temple that they abused would be destroyed. The old religion would be wiped away because the king was here. Now, Jesus was speaking to a very specific moment in history. He was declaring the judgment of God on Israel. But I'm going to say, as Christians, as evangelical Christians living in the 21st century, it is not wrong for us to be challenged not to fall into that same trap. To not somehow fall into the trap of thinking that our religion cannot become fruitless, that our faith cannot become fruitless, where we look like lovely trees. But the reality is we produce no fruit. We need to make sure we are not the Christian equivalent who puts on the show of religion. We go to church. We go to youth group. We go to gospel team. We say the right things. We talk about the Bible reading plans that we're doing. But there is absolutely no change in our heart. We need to remember this withered fig tree and see the warning of nominal Christianity. But here, Jesus' point is even more radical. He's saying a new time is coming. A time to stop trusting in old religious practice because the temple will be destroyed and you won't be able to meet God there anymore. Because who needs the temple, he says, when you have God himself? Who needs hypocritical religion when you have the person of Christ? You see, Peter, he just can't get past that fig tree. He's like, this fig tree is blowing my mind. Like, I just don't get it. You spoke to it yesterday. You said, oh, no one can eat from you again. Oh, it's dead. What's going on? He's just like, this is amazing. And so Jesus, because he's so, he's like, okay, well, I'll use this to teach you about faith and prayer. In fact, there are so many different lessons that we could take from these next few verses. But because we're short on time, I'm only going to look at one. So Jesus is like, how, how, how can this happen? Peter's like, how can this happen? I don't get it. How can this fig tree just wither and die like this? And Jesus says, it can wither and die in a day. If this can happen through my word, well, then anything can happen if you have faith in God. He says, God can do anything in verse 22 to 26. He says, if God can wither a fruit tree, then God can even move mountains. He can take a mountain and say, move from there and go over there and it will happen. In fact, again, in Zechariah chapter 14, It says, a day will come when the Mount of Olives itself will be flattened and make a plain so that the Son of Man can come. Jesus is saying, have your faith in God because this God can move mountains. He can make them flat for the coming of his King, for the coming of the Messiah. Pray, he says, have faith because God will remove all obstacles to see his King glorified and proclaimed in the world. So what sort of people are we? What sort of business are we in? Are we in God's business? Because God can move mountains to bring about his purposes. That's what our God can do. And the secret of this, says Jesus, is to have faith in God. And he says, do you know how you express it? 
by praying to him. Because prayer is faith in action. And in a, in a way, that is a very scary challenge for us. Because if you're a Christian, but your life is prayerless, it really does bring into question whether or not you have faith. Because if you have faith in God, then you will pray. Now, this is a promise. This is not a promise, says Jesus, that whatever you want, God will give it to you. It's not like God is somehow a genie. You ask and it's yours. Because a few days later, Jesus will pray to God. He says, I do not want to die, but your will be done. No prayer seeks the will of God. And Jesus' point is this. If you're amazed by what I have done by withering this tree, you haven't seen anything yet. But if you believe in the God who, I, who sent his son to save the world, then pray to him. Don't just pray for small little things like Aunt Mabel's ingrown toenail. Ask him to do amazing things. He might not always answer us as Christians the way that we want, but we worship a God who can literally move mountains, who can raise the dead, who can change the heart of the hardest atheists. And so let's ask that this God who can move mountains might be at work in us as a church, in our city, and in our country. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the amazing gift that you have given us in your Son. And we pray that we would not put on a, a hypocritical face that would pretend to be people who are godly and produce fruit, but whose hearts are far from you. We ask that we would produce fruit as a church. Please help us to proclaim your gospel in our city, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our acquaintances, to everyone around us. We ask that you would redeem this city, that you redeem this country from its lawlessness, from its wickedness, and from its sin, that Christ might be proclaimed and honored by all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.